Hi, everybody. Just a quick and heartfelt thank you to all the folks who financially support this podcast. We've added a few new benefactors recently, so thank you to Nick, Austin, Candace, and Jenny for being our partners in this project. And ongoing thanks to the folks who contribute monthly on our Patreon site. Mary Beth, Jonathan, Melissa, Kayla, Corin, Megan, Mark, Sarah, Paula, Lynn, Tiffany, Heidi, Bradley, Barbara, Laura, Harry, Justin, Wendy, Mickey, Vicki, Jana, Linda, Molly, Lisa, and MP Banks. Quite a few of you have been with us for more than a year, and you just can't know how much that means to us. By the way, our Patreon family will have access to all of the unedited interviews from the new series we are doing with the Akron Beacon Journal called Unresolved. We kicked off that recently with our review of the unsolved murder of Janice Christensen. And we uploaded the full interview with the Hudson police detectives working on this case. So we hope you enjoyed that bonus content. Now, on with the show. I never give myself the time The time I need to heal my wounds I've been given all I and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Time to Appreciate by Molly Morgan. This singer-songwriter from Columbus is our featured Ohio musical artist tonight. So hang out with us to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you all about her and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. Do we have an incredible story for you tonight? The main character is a man who might easily have been lost in the shadows of more famous bookends. His name was John Scott Harrison and he has the unique distinction of being the only person in American history who was both a son and a father to a U.S. president. His dad was number nine, William Henry Harrison. His son was number 23, Benjamin Harrison. John Scott had a life worthy of remembrance. He was a respected gentleman farmer and even served a stint in Congress. But through no fault of his own, his place in history has more to do with a national scandal that erupted after his death, when his corpse was pulled from its grave by body snatchers and sold to an Ohio medical college that tried to hide the deed. And when I tell you the details of this crime, you're going to think I'm making it up. I tell you, I am not. 
But before we get to the death of John Scott Harrison, let me tell you a little bit about his life. John Scott was one of 10 kids born to William Henry Harrison and his wife, Ann Sims. They were living in Indiana at the time. John Scott was born there because William Henry was the Indiana territorial governor at the time. But the Harrisons eventually moved back to Ohio. Ann Sims was from North Bend near Cincinnati. That's where William Henry met, courted, and married her. And that's where they settled on a farm from which William Henry embarked on the political career that took him to the White House. Now his son, John Scott, was smart as a whip and lived up to what I'm sure his family expected of him. He graduated from law school, valedictorian of his class. But he gave it all up to become a farmer. His father gave him 600 acres bordering his own vast estate in North Bend and John Scott's homestead was dubbed the Point Farm. John Scott Harrison was married twice. His first wife gave him three children. His second wife, Elizabeth Irwin, gave him 10 more, including the future president, Benjamin. They raised their children in a brick two-story farmhouse. He spent four years in Congress representing his Ohio district, But when he was defeated for a third term, he ended his brief political career and focused on the work of running Point Farm. It wasn't an easy life. Being a farmer was a relentless struggle. Their annual income tied to the weather and the seasonal rise and fall of the Ohio River. John's wife, Elizabeth, died when Benjamin was away at school. And the family had bouts with all kinds of illnesses, cholera, smallpox, typhoid, dysentery. At times, money was so tight, John wasn't sure he could afford to keep his kids in school. The oldest two boys, Archibald and Benjamin, they were almost needed to come back home and work the farm. But somehow he managed. Benjamin, the future president, he even went on to Miami University at Oxford to study law like his father before him. John Scott Harrison died on May 25, 1878. Well, that or maybe the day before. They weren't quite sure because he was discovered in the morning on the floor of his bedroom, partially dressed. He'd either died while he was preparing for bed the night before or had risen earlier and passed while getting ready to start his day. He was 73 years old, but his death was still unexpected. His family grieved hard, and four days later, they buried him at Congress Green Cemetery, where the Harrison family plot overlooked the Ohio River. He was just a few yards from the tomb of his prominent father. But it was an unsettling ceremony, because as the family gathered around the grave, they couldn't help but notice that the grave of a friend nearby had been disturbed. It was the grave of August Devon, a 23-year-old friend of the Harrison family who had died just 11 days earlier of tuberculosis. The upturned soil made it obvious someone had stolen the body within. It's probably a good time for me to point out that grave robbing was an industry in the 19th century. 
an illegal one, but a business all the same. Medical schools were desperate for bodies so their students could study the human anatomy and do medical research. In Cincinnati alone, there were six medical training institutions with more than a thousand students. The largest facility was the Ohio Medical College on Vine Street, with some 300 students, each requiring a cadaver for their studies. The state made some provisions for their doctors and training. The remains of paupers and other unclaimed decedents were given over to them, but that still fell far short of what was needed. And with demand outweighing supply, a black market thrived. Body snatchers, who at the time were euphemistically known as resurrectionists, routinely dug up fresh graves and deposited them in the back rooms of medical schools for a fee that was far more lucrative than being a common laborer. It was suspected at the time that some cemeteries might have even been missing up to half their residents. And so when the Harrison boys saw the desecrated grave of their young friend, they took extraordinary measures to protect their father's corpse. He was buried eight feet down, inside a metal casket, surrounded by a bricked-in vault. They added three large stone slabs over the casket. It was said the stones were so big it required 16 men to put them into place. A layer of dirt was added, then a layer of cement. Then the family paid $30 to a watchman to guard the grave for 30 nights. Now, what to do about poor August Devins? The Harrison boys were committed to finding him for his family. Carter Harrison took the lead and began assembling information about Cincinnati's medical schools. And almost immediately, he got an impressive tip. The day after his father's funeral, a witness had seen a buggy drive into the alley between Vine and Ray Streets at three in the morning, right behind the Ohio Medical School. Something wrapped in white was taken from the buggy, then simply seemed to vanish from the alley. The general impression was that a stiff had just been smuggled into the school. And this particular incident really stood out in the mind of the witness because bodies were usually dropped off in run-of-the-mill livery wagons. This body had been delivered by an elegant buggy. Carter Harrison felt certain this body belonged to August Devon. The investigation now was handed off to Carter's eldest brother, John Harrison Jr., and a grandson, George Eaton, who took off for Cincinnati. They enlisted the help of a retired police chief turned private detective, Thomas Snellbaker, and a Cincinnati constable named Walter Lacey, who acquired a search warrant. The men knew time was of the essence. They wanted to return a whole body to August's family, so they hurried to the school, shoved the search warrant at the janitor, J.Q. Marshall, and began their search of the building. The nervous janitor followed as the men discovered the mechanism that explained why the witness described the white-wrapped package disappearing so swiftly in the alley. The alley had a door behind which was a chute that descended to the college's basement. 
More searching turned up boxes of assorted body parts, a student in the act of dissecting an elderly black woman, and a dead infant on an examining table. But no sign of August. By now, the janitor was seriously anxious, and he excused himself to go find some authority figure. But Detective Snellbaker suggested they quietly follow him to see where he went. They trailed him as he worked his way to an upper floor and then revealed themselves when they saw him approaching a pulley system that had a taut rope dropping into a square hole through the floor. Constable Lacey cranked the system to raise the rope up through the hole, and at the end of the rope dangled a naked man, his head covered by a dirty white cloth. The body's arms were crossed, and the rope was fastened around them in the middle of the torso. The hole in the floor, it was learned, went all the way to the basement next to the chute, and allowed for cadavers to be lifted to the dissection rooms on the upper floor. As soon as the body came into the light, it was obvious to John Jr. that the body wasn't their young friend. August was emaciated from his long battle with tuberculosis. The man on this rope was neither young nor gaunt. He was elderly and stout. It's not him, John Jr. told Snell Baker. Right then, Dr. W. W. Seeley, executive officer of the medical college, arrived. He took in the scene, and after learning the body wasn't the August they were looking for, he asked that they put the body back and not mention to anyone what they had found. Especially to August's widow, he said. The suggestion was that if she had any thought that this is what might have happened to her husband, the grief would be too great. The argument seemed to work, and Lacey began to lower the body back down through the trap door, but suddenly Snellbaker held him back. They had come this far. Shouldn't they at least look at the face and be 100% sure it wasn't August? John Jr. hesitated, then agreed. They lowered the corpse to the floor, and John Jr. flipped back the material covering the face. It wasn't August. According to newspaper reports, John Jr.'s next words were, My God, it's Father. John Jr. went pale and trembled at the complete and utter surprise before him. Snellbaker had to catch him as his legs failed. John Scott Harrison's jugular had been sliced to bleed the body out, and his long, white, flowing beard had been cut off. His son also knew him by a mole on his face and a bruise on the right side of his forehead, right where John Scott had hit his head as he fell in his bedroom the night he died. How could this be? In the time it had taken to leave his father's funeral, take the train to Cincinnati, get a search warrant, and make it to the medical school to search for August, his own father's body had been wrested from its fortified grave, transported, sold, and prepared for dissection. John Jr. fell to the ground, sobbing while decrying the men who had desecrated his father's body. 
He drew a small tobacco knife he had on him and held it as a weapon as he sat next to his father's corpse, swearing to protect it until an undertaker could be fetched. The grandson, George Eaton, also overcome with grief, left in search of an undertaker. But the constable grew impatient when he didn't return quickly, and they decided to carry the body to the funeral home of Estep and Meyer on 7th Street near Central Avenue. John Jr. and George discussed what to do next. They couldn't imagine making their family go through the same pain that they had just experienced. What if they took the body back to the cemetery and reinterred it before they told anyone? Then, when the family learned of what had happened, they might suffer less knowing the body was already back where it should be. Constable Lacey suggested that before they made any decision, they should hurry to the cemetery and confirm that the grave had been ransacked. Just one final effort to be 100% sure this was John Scott. And so John Jr. and George headed for the train depot to do just that. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. They didn't know it then, but the rest of the family already knew. Back at North Bend, someone had gone to Carter Harrison's house to tell him the grave had been robbed. Carter rushed to his sister's house to tell her, and they sent another man to the cemetery to confirm it. The thieves had gone into the coffin at its most vulnerable point, drilling the end of the casket and pulling the body out by its feet. Carter quickly sent a telegraph to Cincinnati to inform John Jr. and George. Father's grave has been robbed, the message said. I shall leave for Cincinnati on the first train. Come there immediately. Benjamin had also been notified, and he was already on a train headed to Cincinnati from his home in Indianapolis. The brothers reunited at the train depot, where John Jr. and George told Carter and Benjamin the news. They had already recovered the body. The man who was hired to watch the grave was missing without explanation. Opinion was divided between whether he had been part of the plot or he had run away from the shame of letting the thieves outsmart him. John Jr. reportedly was a mess. Newspapers said he was all but prostrate with grief after the horror of seeing his naked dead father shaved, throat slit, dangling from a rope. The Harrisons took rooms at the Grand Hotel in Cincinnati so they could stay in town while pushing for answers and criminal charges. They started by filing charges against the medical school janitor for receiving and concealing the stolen body. The janitor's bail was set at an incredibly large $5,000. The college posted his bond and promised to fund his defense. 
Meanwhile, Constable Lacey and a contingent of officers went back to the school a second time. They were determined to find the one they had originally sought, August Devon. School staff refused to admit them, saying their search warrant didn't extend into the night hours. Lacey took a step to enter the building, and faculty members threatened to assemble a body of students to bar their way. Lacey muscled forward, pointing to his own official company, and they searched the building yet again. Alas, no sign of young August. The medical college was excoriated in local newspapers, which had condensed the incident into three words, the Harrison Horror. But the school staff only gave a half-hearted apology that their net had caught such a renowned, revered citizen instead of the usual indigence they used for their studies. Instead, they used the momentum of the case to argue their need for cadavers. There was no alternative to studying a real body, they said. One faculty member, Dr. James Whitaker, argued that while he would never support a theft that would cause a family to grieve, he said, The thought of the festering corruption of the body in the grave is more terrible than that of the dissecting room. The college became a center of public curiosity. Crowds gathered in the alley to look at the chute, then walked away wondering if they had ever had a family member meet such a cold and horrifying fate. On June 1, a couple of days after John Scott Harrison's body had been found, a full page in the Cincinnati Enquirer covered all opinions in the matter. Dr. Robert Bartholow, dean of the college, denied any faculty at the school knew of the theft. Then he spent the rest of his statement railing against laws that made it hard for medical schools to come by bodies while holding doctors to a standard of care that is only possible by practicing with said bodies. He said it was true that recent legislation provided for the dissection of unclaimed remains, but argued that the law should be expanded to include anyone who dies in a public institution, since they have to be buried at public expense. Another statement issued by Dr. Seeley, that was the chief executive who was present when John Scott's body was found, he said, Had we known whose body it was that was suspended on that rope, we would have returned it to its grave and said nothing about it. The body was brought here at night and placed in the chute, and I suppose that had not such a stir been made, we would have been called upon for payment. As it is, the man will not be likely to do so, and we may never know who resurrected it. Seeley probably won no fans, though, when the Cincinnati Enquirer revealed that when John Scott's body was found, Seeley tried to speak lightly of it, saying, It will be all the same on Resurrection Day. The Harrison boys were not calmed by any of these words, though Benjamin did make an effort at civility. When the college executive, Dr. Seeley, offered to help catch the thieves, Benjamin went to meet with him in his office. But things didn't go well, and the meeting ended abruptly with Dr. Seeley announcing, I have changed my mind. I will not tell you anything. The Harrisons saw that as an admission 
that the college knew exactly what it had done. They continued to hold court at the Grand Hotel, talking to reporters and lashing out at the school and its faculty. Benjamin also published his own rebuttal, full of anger and anguish. Your janitor denied that it laid upon your tables, but the clean incision into the carotid artery, the thread with which it was ligatured, the injected veins, prove him a liar. Who made that incision and injected that body, gentlemen of the faculty? The surgeons who examined his work say he was no bungler. It must have been done by the officials of the college themselves and not by a janitor or subordinate as they intimate. And then Benjamin penned words that went straight to the heart of any reader. While he lay upon your table, the long white beard which the hands of infant grandchildren had often stroked in love was rudely shorn from his face. Have you so little care of your college that an unseen and an unknown man may do all this? Who took him from that table and hung him by the neck in the pit? While the battle in the media raged on, the Harrison boys launched their own search for the thieves, employing the famed Pinkerton Detective Agency. The watchman who had disappeared reappeared. His name was Lynn. He only insisted he had guarded the grave all night and said he couldn't explain how the body was taken under his nose. Two weeks later, on June 18, a grand jury returned indictments against the men they said were responsible for this travesty, the janitor, J.Q. Marshall, and a man named Charles O. Morton. Charles O. Morton is a book unto himself. He was not some uneducated derelict working with his beer-drinking pal to dig up bodies for spending money. He was a physician who had turned grave robbing into a commercial business, employing crews to steal corpses the way a coal company might employ miners. Morton had already been arrested once earlier that same year in Toledo. He'd been charged with stealing at least 10 bodies from Toledo cemeteries. And a letter found in his possession outlined the arrangement he had with the University of Michigan to supply cadavers to its Ann Arbor Medical School. He also had a reputation for pushing the limits of what the law might have been willing to overlook. You see, he didn't just harvest the indigent from potter's fields. He took middle-class folks right from their private and church cemeteries. But while in Toledo's custody, Dr. Morton managed to escape. He had contracted smallpox, and nobody wanted to be around him. And in his isolation, he was able to slip away and quietly made his way to Cincinnati. There, he moved into a nice home at the corner of 7th and Main Streets downtown, recovered from his illness, and went back to work. He was short, slender, well-groomed, even handsome, in his mid-thirties, and described as lithe as a cat. He had a fast horse and a new buggy. 
and though he hung out his shingle as a general practitioner, his neighbors thought he kept very late hours. Snellbaker, the private dick employed by the Harrisons, turned up Dr. Morton in his investigation and learned about his connection to the University of Michigan. And so Snellbaker went to Ann Arbor for a visit, and there he found August Devins in a pickling vat. On June 17, August was shipped home and reinterred with guards hired to watch his grave. As a matter of fact, Snellbaker identified and reunited multiple families with loved ones that had been stolen from Cincinnati. But Morton evaded authorities once again. That grand jury may have indicted him for the theft of the bodies of August Devins and John Scott Harrison, but he was nowhere to be found. Then one day, a short, well-dressed, even handsome man, who was lithe as a cat, showed up in Braidwood, Illinois. He hung out his shingle under the name Dr. H. LeCaron. Dr. LeCaron opened a couple of pharmacies, was voted president of the State Pharmaceutical Association, and won every vote in his town when he ran for the state legislature. That wasn't all. He started joining Irish-American societies, where he helped raise money and stir interest in the fight for Ireland's independence. But in truth, he was a spy, acting as an agent for the English government. LeCaron cultivated his persona for a decade until a series of explosive revelations revealed his treachery within the Irish community and also revealed him to be Dr. Charles O. Morton, formerly expert grave robber. As Benjamin Harrison ascended to the highest office in America, there was nothing to be done about the man who had defiled his father's corpse. Dr. Charles Morton, a.k.a. Dr. LeCaron, was under the protection of Scotland Yard. We are less certain about what happened in regards to the medical college's role in the theft of John Scott's body. We know the Harrison family filed a civil suit, but the Hamilton County Courthouse burned down in 1884, taking its records with it. And according to one report I found, the outcomes of any criminal and civil cases in this particular matter were lost. In reaction to the Harrison horror, the states of Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Iowa, and Michigan passed new laws increasing the penalties for grave robbing while expanding a body source for medical schools by allowing them to claim people who had died in the care of the state. But demand continued to outstrip supply, and grave robbing continued for many more years. So what happened to John Scott Harrison's body? At first, the sons were not interested in returning him to his grave. They accepted the offer of the Strader family to temporarily keep their father in their own family vault in the Cincinnati Cemetery of Spring Grove. John Scott's original casket was dug up, 
repaired, and with its occupant returned, placed in the straighter tomb for safekeeping. Some family members went for the interment, suffering a second tear-filled ceremony as the body was lowered into what a newspaper called the catacombs. The Spring Grove Cemetery invited the Harrison family to move all of their late loved ones to the cemetery if they wished. But the widow Harrison didn't want to go that far. Eventually, John Scott was returned to North Bend, Ohio. But exactly where? In 1999, the Ohio Historical Society sought to find out. Most of the family was still in Congress Green Cemetery, where John Scott was originally buried, but there was reason to think he was actually now across the street. You see, there, back in the late 1800s, a new memorial had been built for President William Henry Harrison, a memorial that had undergone several renovations and once a complete reconstruction. Large pillars with eagles on top were added. A 60-foot obelisk was erected after that. And at that site, along with the remains of the former president and his wife, were three unmarked vaults. And so the society and members of the family foundation which maintained the tomb removed some bricks on the unmarked vaults and inserted a small camera on a metal pole. With the Hamilton County coroner looking on, they watched the images sent to a television monitor. The cameras showed that the coffins, more than a century old by now, had caved in. There were images of bones and a plaque on one coffin. In the end, they couldn't be 100% certain, but they felt somewhat confident that John Scott Harrison was in one of those vaults. The other two belonged to William Henry's daughter, Mary, and a granddaughter. Short of doing DNA testing on the remains, one project coordinator said, there's no positive proof. Well, that's our story tonight. In addition to all the contemporary newspaper accounts I was able to access, I want to give credit for some of the research in this story to the website Mental Floss and to Cincinnati Magazine and reporter Michael Morgan, who just this year published a story about the career of grave robber Charles O. Morton. Steve, I think I remember telling you, if we looked hard enough, we'd find a mystery associated with every Ohio president. This episode, we owe to Dawn, one of our Ohio Mysteries listeners, who learned about it in a book she was reading. Uh, Yes, of course. Thanks, Dawn. And maybe we should remind the folks the episode we did on William Henry Harrison. The mystery was the question of how he died. The history books have long suggested it was pneumonia which he suffered after giving a long inauguration speech in the freezing cold and rain. Right. But if you recall, modern day doctors who have looked over his records think he died of something else. I won't give it away here, just in case you haven't listened to that episode yet. Steve, can you remember the other Ohio president we did an episode on? Of course, Warren G. Harding. The question about the child born to a woman, not his wife, and long suspected as being his? Yes, DNA wrapped up that mystery just a few years ago. Again, not going to give it away. 
Hey, maybe our Ohio Mysteries listeners can help search for episodes, ideas for other presidents. You know what? That would be awesome. I, I even have a list right here. We still need episodes for Ulysses S. Grant, Rutherford B. Hayes, James A. Garfield, William McKinley, and William Taft. I haven't tried looking yet, but if any enterprising listener out there wants to help, find us a mystery to explore. And remember, it doesn't even have to be a president from Ohio. We've done Abraham Lincoln a couple of times. As long as there's a connection. Uh, John F. Kennedy, We that, there was an Ohio connection. That's right. As long as there's an Ohio connection. All right. Well, if you do, if you find something about a president, preferably ones that are from Ohio, our email is feedback at ohiomysteries.com. Just send in your ideas right there. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And don't forget, if you haven't heard the episodes on Harding or Harrison, you can find a complete list with links on our website. Also, last time I checked, Spotify has kept all of our 200-plus episodes, so that is a good source as well. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. Molly Morgan spent a chunk of her life in Canton, Ohio, but more recently has been living in Columbus, where she's been writing some amazing music during the pandemic. We're always excited when she sends us what she's been up to. So we're happy again to share one of her latest pieces, Time to Appreciate. Molly said the song is about giving someone all of yourself. She said, giving them your trust and your love, and they take it for granted. Then once you've walked away and had enough, that's when they realize what they had all along. Too late. You need time to appreciate. Anyway, go find Molly Morgan's YouTube channel. We'll put it on our episode notes and also on our website under the Featured Music tab. You'll want to follow her because we have no doubt there's more great music coming in the future. She is definitely one of my favorites. Here's Time to Appreciate by Molly Morgan. Enjoy, and we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.
Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.